Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. Maybe your owner carries out his task in springtime, once a year. Or perhaps he does it several times a year. Whatever his preferred schedule, he has no choice. He has to do it because that's why he's feeding you, and that's why he's watering you, and that's why he's inoculating you from disease, and that's why he's protecting you from the wolves. At least once a year, your owner needs to herd you and all the rest of his sheep out of the pasture and push the whole flock into the fold for an expert, much-practiced inspection. But this time he's not inspecting your fleece. He's not looking to shear off your coat so his wife can knit wool sweaters for each of their children. No, he's inspecting you and the rest of his sheep according to size, weight, and age because, well, he's, he's raising his sheep for lamb chops, lamb shoulder, leg of lamb, and rack of lamb. Your owner's inspections always lead to marking certain sheep for slaughter. Most sheep don't have the brain power to give a second thought to their red paint sprayed on their shoulder, but what if you're exceptional? What if you're the, that rare intelligent sheep? What if, unlike the rest of the flock, you realize you've been marked for slaughter? Now, every morning you wake up in that sheepfold, you're wondering whether it's going to be your last. You're fretting about who's going to do you in and how they'll do it and whether you'll suffer pain or, or, or just go quickly. You've always been grateful for your superior intelligence till now because there's nothing worse than being a knowledgeable sheep marked for slaughter. Far-fetched imagery? Not according to the descendants of Korah, 3,000 years ago, the so-called sons of Korah composed 11 psalms. Their psalms were songs of worship at Israel's tabernacle and temple. We no longer have the instrumental music they composed. We no longer know the, the melodies of their psalms. But the poetic lines remain, like Psalm 44 which reflects the harsh realities of their times. Just listen to what they wrote. God, you have rejected and humbled us. You made us retreat before the enemy and our adversaries have plundered us. You've made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. People shake their heads at us. Lord, you crushed us. You covered us over with deep darkness. And then this woeful, famous lament. Lord God, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. If that sounds too Old Testament for your shape, for your taste, if that strikes you as too dark, too bleak, too sorrowful. There's this New Testament apostle, his name is Paul. And Paul rattles off not 
one, not two, not five, not six, but seven things that could potentially slaughter us New Testament believers. The apostle acknowledges, one, trouble. That is, anything that pressures us or oppresses us. He lists two, hardship. Each of those occasions when you feel as though you're squeezed between a rock and a hard place. And three, persecution. When someone badgers you or dismisses you for confessing faith in the Lord. He he counts four, hunger, and five, needing clothing or shelter, or or anything that threatens your bodily well-being. And there are a lot of things that do that. Paul speaks of six, danger in in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. And seven, sword. That is, whatever can kill the body or destroy body and soul in hell. Just because you're a child of God, you're not so secure that nothing threatens you. Simply because you're a Christian, you're you're not so safe that no one can hurt you. Which is precisely what this New Testament apostle acknowledges. He lists all those threats and then pulls this lament directly from those Descendants of Korah in their Psalm 44. Lord, he writes, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I realize your life doesn't always feel that way. Thank God for that. There are days when you're strong and healthy physically and when you're faithful and true spiritually. There are days when you're happy about your lot in life and joyful about God's goodness to you, but other days? I had a conversation with someone recently. She, she said something like this. She said, Pastor, I don't work in a restaurant. None of my family members are employed by a, a school. None of my loved ones are in the travel industry. During these COVID times, so many people are suffering financially, but I'm doing fine. But since last March, she said, I haven't done anything. I don't visit my family. I don't see my friends. I don't go out to eat. I don't go to a movie. I don't socialize. There's nothing to do, and I'm so bored. And she added, I can relate when I hear a lot of people are really sad because sometimes I'm really sad. To me, at least, that sounds like one, trouble, or two, hardship. In my view, at least, that sister in Christ could regard herself as a sheep marked for slaughter. A moment ago, you heard me say something like this, that Just because you're a child of God, you're not so secure that nothing threatens you. That just because you're a Christian, you're not so safe that no one or nothing can hurt you. To some degree, in fact, the threats coming your way are much more focused because you're a child of God. Think about it. Why should the devil bother trying to destroy someone who's already under his control. 
Why would the devil expend energy trying to cause the downfall of somebody who's already fallen into unbelief? Why would the devil devise clever temptations for those who are already headed for an eternity in hell? But Jesus Christ himself? Of course the devil would tempt Jesus Christ himself. Of course he would try to crush him under the weight of guilt. Or a confessing, church-going Christian? Of course he's going to direct three, persecution your way. Of course he's going to test you with four, hunger, or five, clothing or shel- uh, needing clothing or shelter, or, or six, danger, or seven, sword. Someone once illustrated it this way. He pointed to a custom that goes back at least 18 centuries. According to Jesus' command, when someone is baptized, there's water. According to Jesus' command, when someone is baptized, there's the the word of forgiveness and adoption and eternal life in the name of the triune God. And according to a custom that goes back at least 18 centuries, the sign of the cross is made at every baptism. Receive the sign of the cross on the head and heart, the pastor says, to mark you as a redeemed child of Christ. That's all good, right? Yet you must also realize that the sign of the cross also marks you as someone now targeted by the devil. That cross on your head and on your heart. That cross marks you as a a bullseye for the tempter. The day you were baptized, your mortal enemy stepped into place to destroy you. Ever since that day, the devil has you in his crosshairs. And he won't stop testing you till you take your final breath. But wait, hold on. That's not the main point of this psalm composed and sung by the sons of Korah. And it's certainly not the heart of St. Paul's letter to us. Now, here's the heart of St. Paul's letter to us. One short phrase. God is for us. God is on our side. More than that, he's pushing back hard and, and, and doing so successfully against the tempter and all the things that threaten us. You want proof? Well, you remember how Abraham had the altar built and the wood stacked on top of it and and the knife in his hand. Remember how Abraham was willing to, to give up his one and only son, Isaac? God spared Abraham and Isaac. God did not spare his own son, Jesus. Instead, on the altar of the cross, God gave up his own son and he did it for us. God gave his own son to to crush the power of the tempter. Gave up his own son to atone for our many sins. Gave up his own son to lift away our guilt, to chase away our fears, to confirm his love for us. God gave up his own son to die for us and then to rise for us. All to prove, absolutely, 
God is for us. The Apostle Paul's way of putting this together is so clear and, and, and so convincing. He writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see what's being combined here? God gave up his own son on the cross. At the same time, God gave us his own son to be our salvation, our redemption, our victory. So it stands to reason that along with giving us his own son, God gives us all the things we need. You've given in to the tempter more times than you can count. In God's courtroom, the tempter would love to bring charges against you. Can't do it. God chose you to be his own. The, the devil would love to condemn us to hell for our many faults and failures. Can't do it. God declares us not guilty. The old evil foe wants to consign us to a miserable life during which all we can see is one, trouble, two, hardship, three, persecution, four, hunger, five, needing clothing or shelter, six, danger, and seven, death by sword. The devil would love to consign us to such a life. Can't do it. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. At the right hand of God, he's insisting that our Heavenly Father grant us mercy and kindness and strength and protection and faith through all such tests till we take our final breath. The closing passage of Romans chapter 8 You and I cannot hear it too often. May I read it to you again? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 37 to 39. Find your Bible. Mark it in your Bible when you get it open to Romans chapter 8, verses 37 to 39. Leave the Bible open on the kitchen counter this week. Memorize it. Think on it over and over. And then just ask yourself those questions of the apostle. Can any test in this life or at your death separate you from the love of God? No. Can any 
temptation from the devil or any accusation after you've sinned separates you from the love of God? No. Can something going on right now separate you from the love of God? No. Can something that happens to you in the future do that? No. Can the highest heights of success or the lowest lows of failure separate you from the love of God? No. You name it, brother. You name it, sister. God's love for you in Christ Jesus is so strong, so steady, so dear, so deep, so pure, so precious, and so proven certain by the fact that he gave up his own son for you, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Merely sheep marked for the slaughter, not you, not me. Not anyone who is so loved by the God who is for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.